When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. What does safe mean in these markets? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, March 29, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Noel Atchison, author of Crypto is Macro Now newsletter, which you can find on Substack. Noel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Ash. Great to be here with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to have you, especially for this conversation. Uh, the title of your newsletter says it all. Crypto is macro now. Let's talk about some of these broader forces that are influencing both the cryptocurrency landscape as well as the broader macro landscape. Big picture, Noel, what do you see going on right now? Gosh, where to start and how long do you have? I mean, there's just so much going on at the moment. And one thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently, Ash, is how we keep talking about change. We keep waving our hands and saying things are changing, but we're not doing enough of a job, I think, in picking apart what we exactly mean by that. Things are changing a lot and they're changing in ways we even are slightly overlooking. And this matters. It matters not just for economic activity, but it matters for market structure. It matters for the regulatory approach. The change that we've been talking about is also hard to get our heads around because it is so multifaceted and interrelated as well. But we really do need to start thinking about what is this change we know is here and what does that mean for our savings, for our kids' futures, and for the global economy at large. So how do you even begin to decompose that then to the next level? Absolutely correct. We have seen this regime shift from the Fed. Uh, we heard folks talking about this rate hiking cycle saying they're going to hike rates until something breaks. Well, something broke. Uh, the world is not quite the same as it was a month ago. Talk to us a little bit about what the key metrics you're looking at for understanding how this is happening, Noel. Key metrics, I mean, there, there are so many and how they're backward looking, pretty much all of them, and how relevant are they anyway? This is another thing that I've been thinking a lot about. You've heard the saying, Ash, no doubt, that generals always fight the last war, right? But I think that's what we're seeing now. We're assuming that things broke, therefore the Fed will be cutting, but that's the banking market of banking ecosystem of many or several years ago. We assume that interest rate hikes are going to bring down consumption, but that's what we thought back in 1980. We're assuming that the old playbooks still apply because we haven't yet got our heads around that this is a very, very different market. One thing um, that I have been writing about recently is what safe even means and is right. that even what the next generation of investors want as to what safe even means well and this matters because regulators are there to protect us right and this is driving a lot of their decisions uh, we talk about safe assets crypto the you know the world that I, I spend most of my time in is not safe and therefore should be pushed offshore but the treasury market is very safe. It's the safest assets in the market. Although, have you seen the volatility? 
in treasury bills recently. Everyone knows now that the volatility is high because the treasury market is not very safe. It's not liquid anymore. Right. Structure has changed. The regulation has not changed. And there isn't even a clear idea of exactly how it works. Whereas um, it's not safe in the sense that you'll get your you'll get money at par eventually. But is that what safe means? Houses. Houses are safe, right? But house prices are declining. Is that safe? The, the walls may stay up. That's safe. But your value is not necessarily safe. Even gold, the ultimate safe asset. Gold is, you know, gold is gold. And we all, you know, we've been working with gold now for thousands of years, but we don't necessarily know that the gold we hold is real. Is It's very difficult to verify for central banks as well as for individuals. And the paper gold, is it necessarily backed? And if it is backed, is it backed by real gold? So safe, what does that mean? Then you step back and you look at crypto assets such as Bitcoin. Definitely not safe, right? But easy to verify, easy to store, uh, seizure resistant. So one thing we really need right. to start doing, Ash, I think is what does safe mean and why does that matter? Well, Noel, this really is the perfect time to have this conversation. It's as fresh as the day's headlines, but you bring a kind of strategic depth through it, thinking about this through the perspective of a longer term research framework. Uh, you know, today, uh, Wall Street Journal has an article called As Interest Rates Rose, Banks Did a Balance Sheet Switcheroo. This is all about the change uh, in the classification from an accounting perspective of how bonds were held on their balance sheets uh, at SVB and at some of the other banks. Bloomberg has an article out today called uh, SVB's Collapse Shows the World's favorite safe asset isn't risk-free. Precisely the point you were making, uh, written by my old Real Vision colleague, or co-written, I should say, by my old Real Vision colleague, Edward Harrison. Uh, and let's take a look, just to give a little bit of context to this, to give a visual perspective for people who are watching this. I'll describe what you're seeing on the chart for folks uh, who are listening to the podcast. But let's take a look, if we can, uh, at the two-year Treasury note yield, uh, if we could bring that up, Gabrielle. Uh, this this is a, a pretty striking chart. This is, a, I believe, a three-month chart. Uh, and what you can see is that the end of this sort of a slow roll up that we saw in treasury reels uh, peaking out at over 500 basis points on or about March 8th. This is where we start to see the instability happen uh, at SBB, the challenges we saw at Signature Bank. And then this, this dramatic, uh, I believe more than 120 basis point collapse in the two year treasury note yield rolling up a little bit uh, right now trading. It looks like on my screen at about uh, just under, well, 4.097. Uh, from a, on a percent basis. Uh, this obviously is a tremendous amount of volatility for the treasury market. You were mentioning uh, you were mentioning bills, which are even shorter in duration than notes. Uh, Noel, how do you contextualize this? How do you frame it? How do you put understanding around this, particularly for people who came to crypto and digital assets more from the from the technology side, from the engineering side, who are find uh, fixed income securities baffling as many people who don't have traditional financial and economic backgrounds do. Well, most of us in crypto these days, Ash, as you know, are becoming avid Fed watchers, and we do check the rates before we go, before we even open our eyes in the morning, practically. Whereas, you know, when you and I first met several years ago, we didn't do that. We didn't care that much about the market. Now it is all about the rates. And the chart that you just showed is very telling because had you overlaid the Fed funds on top of that, you'd see that there's almost a record gap now between Fed funds and the two years. The two years way below Fed funds. That's not normal. They're supposed to track each other. The Fed funds are supposed to influence short-term rates. So what you're seeing there, Ash, is the market telling the Federal Reserve we don't believe you. We don't believe that you're going to be keeping rates where they are now. And this is a fascinating narrative, which does feed over into the, the safe um, concept that I was talking about before and crypto markets. 
because is the market right? Is the Fed going to cut? Now, if we were, as I mentioned earlier on, fighting the last war, then yes, the Fed would be cutting to save the banking sector. But the banking sector is very different now than it was in 2008. Banks are better capitalized. They are better regulated. Sure, we had a big blow up a few weeks ago. We'll never forget that. But the regulators are all over this now. We're getting the regulators even telling us implicitly that, don't worry, we'll protect deposits when we need to. Now, this is very worrying because this is going to probably support the inflationary trends that we're seeing for some time longer. So is the market right or is the Fed right? I'm more inclined to think the market's wrong and the Fed may be wrong as well, but probably not as wrong as the market is right now. That matters for risk asset prices and especially the sensitive assets. The most sensitive risk asset uh, would be Bitcoin. Yes, and of course, the Fed has the opportunity to throw the spanner into the works if they so choose. Uh, it's almost like the spirits of Arthur Burns uh, and, and Paul Volcker are struggling to get uh, the policy clarity here on what's going to happen next. Uh, I was on with Nouriel Roubini here on Real Vision uh, on the macro side. By the way, if you're not subscribed to Real Vision, go uh, and check that interview out. I think we have a free trial on now. I'm not certain. Uh, but listen, Nouriel said uh, that this is no longer a dilemma between managing inflation and employment, it's now a trilemma between managing inflation, employment, and also the third prong of that, which is liquidity and financial stability with regard to the banking system. It's a very challenging time. Very challenging time. And it's not just the liquidity and probity of the banking system that they need to worry about. The actual markets itself, we saw a couple of weeks ago, treasury market pretty much seize up. We saw this again in October last year. We saw this again in 2020. Treasury markets are not supposed to do that, Ash. Treasury markets are the markets that we, are ha we have to count on liquidity in the treasury markets for it to be the world's safe collateral. And we're seeing that we can't do that so much anymore because of market structural forces that the regulators have not yet got there heads around. And as another example, I was stunned to read a headline today that said the the um, the financial regulators have realized that they need to do a bit of digging to figure out what's going on in the CDS market. They, what, they just realized now they don't know what's going on there. I posit that they don't really know what's going on in the treasury market either. And this is right. key for global stability, which comes back to the safe dialogue. Yeah. And, you know, it's very interesting uh, because these are allegedly uh, the deepest and most liquid capital markets in the world. Uh, and so when there are these challenges here, they have these kind of uh, sort of processional effects that radiate out throughout markets. By the way, if you're just tuning in uh, to Real Vision Daily Briefing right now and you're wondering, hey, why are they talking about crypto on Real Vision Daily Briefing? I mean, this is an interesting point. This is the point that we talked about at the top of the show where crypto and macro have sort of begun to blur together uh, as people search for safe assets, uh, precisely the challenges that you've mentioned here, that the journalist mentioned, that Bloomberg has mentioned. This is on the tip of everyone's mind and you were ahead of the curve thinking about this from the perspective of research. It's so fascinating, Ash. I mean, crypto has been my main focus for many years now. I started uh, covering the crypto industry back in 2014 for Coindesk in 2016, uh, Genesis Trading as head of market insights there in 2021. And I left there at the end of, in September last year, to focus on the bigger picture research that I am most excited about, which is how, how macro is affecting crypto. You know, we've been talking about that. You've been covering that so well on your show, but also more importantly, how crypto will be influencing the macro landscape. This is something, right. the dialogue that I think has been very overlooked. We're starting to see evidence of that now through market structure conversations, but there's also the whole energy policy, there's the currency issues, and there's the trade questions as well, not to mention reserves, et cetera, et cetera. It is one of the most fascinating conversations at the moment. Comes back also to what I mentioned, I think at the top, which was how 
this change that we know is here, it really is time to start getting to grips with what that actually means and how that should be influencing regulatory shifts as well. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, I should say, as you mentioned uh, earlier, we met years ago uh, when we were both at Coindesk. I believe you were director of research at the time. Uh, I was uh, covering, running the markets coverage at that point. Uh, we met over Slack. Uh, you were in Europe. I was here in the United States. But it's great to get to do this conversation with you now on Real Vision uh, to talk about and contextualize all these points. Talking of which, I wanted to bring up a couple of charts uh, from your latest newsletter, or the last two newsletters, I should say. Uh, the first is DXY. This is a dollar index talking about the safety of assets. Uh, if we can bring that up on the screen right now uh, and take a look at that. And there we go. And you can see that decline. Uh, it looks like uh, it's a little small on my screen, but I think that's DXY with rates. Uh, I can't really see it too well. My eyes aren't that great. But talk a little bit about what we're seeing there, uh, Noel, in terms of the decline in price of DXY relative to interest rates. I pulled this up because it struck me interesting that the dollar is supposed to follow interest rates. Well, I'll step back a bit. I started poking into the dollar. Why is the dollar going down with so much uncertainty in the world? And we're not just talking about banking fragility. We're talking about global turmoil. There's unrest, there's uh, elections, there's trade shifts. So there's a lot going on in the world and you would think that the dollar would be the safe haven, but it's not. It has been declining recently. And this could be explained partially by the decline in the two year for instance, and you do see some overlap there, but again, not always. And the point that I'm trying to make with this is to show that the dollar safe asset doesn't necessarily move as it would be expected to these days because there are so many other factors in play as well with the dollar. Unlike other safe assets, it is a currency. It is driven by relative interest rates and it's also driven by some internal political issues as well. So much going on with the dollar. And I was using that to draw a parallel to Bitcoin as well. Bitcoin is a safe asset, but is also many other things as well. And safe in the dollar sense is totally different from safe in the Bitcoin sense, but neither are invalid for that. So I want to talk about directly Bitcoin because there's some interesting data coming out. Uh, you alluded to this and you have a chart that I want to show in just a minute. But first, I want to take a look at a chart from Coindesk. This is for market depth for BTC and Ethereum. Uh, you can see when this chart pops up that these are both in a rather steep decline. Uh, talk a little bit, Noel, for folks who may not understand what market depth is, what it means, uh, and why it's important to understanding potential forward price action. Now, this is such an interesting chart and, you know, hats off to, to the team, for the tech team for pulling this up. Uh, it's fascinating because it speaks to the shift in market structure and how market structure influences prices. We're seeing this in traditional markets. We've seen this in the treasury market. We're seeing this now in the crypto markets as well. Everyone knows, Ash, that let's use Bitcoin. Bitcoin is volatile. Everyone knows that it's volatile. But in January, it reached its lowest volatility on record. And this coincides with a drop in market depth, market depth being how much you could uh, put into the market without moving the price, how, how large an order you could put in without moving the price. 2% uh, I think is usually the, but it can be 1%, probably a better measure now. And this has been dropping also, you would think, well, surely volatility be going up. When liquidity drops, volatility goes up. That's not what we've seen, which is fascinating. What this is telling us is that, yes, there is less liquidity, but there's also just less interest. And this comes down to trader mentality, another fascinating psychoanalytical effort there. Trader mentality as in when 
you have uncertainty in an already volatile market, it's kind of crazy to just pile on even more. When there's that much uncertainty, we found that traders would just step back from what is uh, you know, ostensibly one of the large, the most volatile markets out there. Now traders are coming back in and volatility is picking up. The Binance issue is relevant, however, because with the closure, if the US-based trading desks have to pull back or close down, and if other Binance trading partners go a bit slower given CFTC, we'll see even lower liquidity in the Bitcoin market. And will this enhance volatility or will volatility come back down again as again traders step back? We just don't know. We've never been in this kind of water before, but it shows that volatility and illiquidity don't always go hand in hand. Yeah, it really is interesting. That's not typically what you'd expect to see. Boy, by the way, we've got something of a double whammy here. We've got CFTC filing suit against Binance while simultaneously uh, here in the United States, you have SEC serving a Wells notice on Coinbase. Uh, these are the two biggest players in the space uh, in terms of volume. By the way, let's take a look at uh, BTC and ETH total exchange volume, seven-day DMA. Uh, this from your research, Noel. Let's pop this up on the screen and maybe we can talk a little bit about the impact uh, of those two events happening within, I think, about 48 hours of each other. It's quite extraordinary, this drop in volume. And it's extraordinary because back when we saw the volume heading up, we were like, oh, this means the big players are coming in. That was quite exciting. Only now we're wondering, was that volume real in the CFTC suit against Binance? It does allege that Binance's volume was not always clean. Was this real volume that we saw heading up and we have now seen those traders that I mentioned before now stepping back, bringing back down? Or was the volume not even real in the first place? It's another structural quirk of the crypto markets. The data is transparent pretty much, but it doesn't always tell us what we think it's telling us. And I find that um, the need to dig deeper, I find that part fascinating. Just a quick moment to remind you, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now back to today's analysis. Yeah, talking of crypto markets, I wanted to take a look at a clip. Uh, this, of course, is our own Samuel Burke interviewing Lawrence Lepard on Real Vision. Uh, and the title is Our Top Performer Returns. This is from the Essential Tier from yesterday, March 28th. Talking about Bitcoin, let's take a look at the clip. And there are only a small group of us now who believe that this is money. But I believe that the trend is that more and more people over time are going to come to see what we see, that this represents a really digitally perfect form of money. And, and the reason is that it can't be printed. And the other reason is it's actually deflationary. I mean, even in the gold instance, you know, the gold grows up every year you know, by the 1.7% that we mine. And so in 40 or 50 years, there'll be twice as much gold in the world. In 40 or 50 years, there'll still only be 21 million Bitcoin. And so um, as more and more people come to see that and understand that, I believe the prices kind of kind of continue to go up forever. And I can see $100,000 Bitcoin, $1 million Bitcoin, $10 million Bitcoin, you know, within my kid's lifetime, because there's a limited supply. And we live in a deflationary world and we need a deflationary currency to, to fit with that. And, you know, Keynes was wrong. All gold people know that Keynes was completely wrong. Printing money does not create wealth. It just redistributes wealth. And so the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, I think gold is analog sound money. I think Bitcoin is a form is digital sound money. 
Lawrence Laporte, a, a deflationary asset for a deflationary world. Noelle, thoughts? I thought it was such a fascinating clip. Lawrence touched on two points that, that I care a lot about that I'll get excited about. And one is the comparison with gold. I mean, it's fairly easy to compare Bitcoin with gold and all this the typical measures, but one that many people tend to overlook is the supply cap. They say that gold has a supply cap, Bitcoin has a supply cap, they're both hard assets. And it's actually not true, Ash. And this highlights a very unique characteristic of Bitcoin. Gold's supply cap depends on its price. Were gold to go up to $20,000, $50,000, suddenly we'd be mining gold in asteroids, digging it out of the seabed. There'd be new extraction Right. methods that would suddenly become viable. So really, gold doesn't have a supply cap because it is influenced by its price. That makes Bitcoin pretty much unique. No matter what the price of Bitcoin will be, it still has the same supply cap. And that is verifiable in real time and programmatic and cannot be changed. That is that is fascinating. And again, nothing I say is investment advice, obviously, and this is not a right. recommendation to buy Bitcoin, but it's a fascinating aspect of this asset which highlights how hard it is for regulators to get their heads around it. And the other thing that Lawrence said, which I get excited about, is Bitcoin is money. Now, I'm not going to say I agree with him. I am going to say that who decides what money is? Many of the economists that I talk to will tell us this isn't money because of these four reasons. It doesn't satisfy this criteria. And my reaction is always, who sets these criteria and why do we have to abide them? Is there, a def is there an official definition decided by who? In my opinion, money is what we want it to be. If you and I want to exchange bags of sugar, we could be able to do so. Is it money? Maybe. If we want to use it as such. Why can't we? And this is one of the highlights. This highlights what crypto has introduced in the world, which is you know, part of its role on the macro stage. And that is choice, greater choice than we have ever had when it comes to the kind of money that we can use for transactions. Yeah, it's a tr it really is a truly fascinating question, this idea of what is money. I'm inclined to dodge that question by saying it's kind of a question like asking, uh, what is a weed, right? It's a plant that you don't like. What is what is art? Uh, you know, it's it's a picture that you find uh, aesthetically satisfying. I think for me, I, I dodge that question by saying it's not legal tender in the sense that if you live in the U.S., that's defined by the IRS. You can't remit your federal income taxes in Bitcoin. Uh, but who's to say what really is money? And if you want to use it as a medium of exchange or uh, or a store of value, uh, that really is a, a very kind of vague. It's more of a in the domain of philosophy than economics or finance. Uh, and uh, it is interesting. I, I I thought it's really a compelling point. He points out, Lawrence points out that. Uh, the supply of gold is increasing almost 2% per year. And you're absolutely right. This is something, and Lawrence makes this point as well, as we've originally never seen before uh, in the history of monetary economics, this idea of something that has a totally fixed supply schedule that can't float uh, as uh, there's more demand. And, and you know, I guess uh, the cynic in me thinks if the global monetary system were based on a truly deflationary asset, would you have a nightmarish scenario of Fisherian debt deflation where you had a, a generation that couldn't possibly manage to pay the debts uh, that they accumulated because the value of the money uh, kept rising relative to the productive capacity of the economy? I mean, these are really interesting philosophical questions. Any thoughts on all of that? So many, where to start? The philosophical side of it is the most fascinating. And it's not just the question that the, this new tool is giving us the, 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 the excuse to ask. It's the redefining things that we have taken for granted. I used to work in traditional finance and I thought I understood money, but I realized now that it wasn't until I learned about Bitcoin that I 
understood money. Before then, I conflated money with numbers and I moved it around. And, and that was money because I was told it was so. Now, myself and, you know, millions of others around the world are asking these questions that we've never really had an excuse to ask before. What is money? What is currency? What are payments? What is safe? Uh, the, the list can go on about the different philosophical views there. And when it comes to um, Bitcoin and its role as money, we've never had something before that can be money as well as a new technology that can actually serve a function in contracts and can make other things happen. Bitcoin has smart contract functionality, much more limited than on Ethereum. Is, it, is Ether money? You can buy things with it. You buy your NFTs with it. It has a, you know, a quotable price. It is a unit of account in many. So it does check many of the definitions, but it is also a technology that unlocks other actions via smart contracts. This, this melding of concepts that we believe we understand yeah. is really showing us that we don't understand them. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, there's so many interesting philosophical and existential questions about this. Uh, before we get too deep asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, I wanted to jump to a question from Colin Iveson, uh, who takes us back to the pragmatic. This one comes to us from YouTube. So is the bond, this is the question, quote, so is the bond market too optimistic in its view for rate cuts? By the way, I should say uh, NASDAQ closing up on the day almost 1.8%, S&P closing up on the day uh, over 4,000 now at uh, looks like just about 1.4%. Uh, so this is a really pragmatic question. Are we being too optimistic in terms of markets pricing in expectations of a Fed rate cut? My personal view is yes, the market is being too optimistic. I don't think we're going to see the cuts the market is pricing in for the simple reason that I would be surprised if we had further bank blowups at this stage. Things are fragile. I'm, I think we're more likely to see blowups perhaps in some hedge funds or, or God forbid, even pension funds or even some more def uh, an uptick in the number of defaults. But the banks are being very closely watched, as I mentioned earlier. And we do have the regulators pretty much saying, don't worry, you're good. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of you. So I think we don't have that trigger that he's going to have to cut to save the financial system. I do think we have stickier inflation and the market is pricing in the, the sticky inflation index has ticked up quite notably from between February and January. You've got the PC coming out on Friday. That could give us a negative surprise. I really hope it doesn't, but it could. But either way, the, uh, the, New, York, uh, the New York Fed published a blog, uh, blog post earlier this month pointing out that their version of sticky inflation is being revised upwards and mm. is showing a surprising resilience. And this is the New York Fed admitting that this is showing surprising resilience. So inflation is not going away. The Fed has to bring it down. It simply has to. Not doing so would be a disastrous in terms of economic evolution, not just for the US, but for the entire world that depends on the US as a trading partner. And I do think we won't get very many right, uh, increases from here, though, simply because mm. Uh, liquidity is dried up. The banks are not lending. That is going to dent consumption. We are going to see unemployment tick up. So inflation is past its peak for sure. I do believe it's going to gradually head down, but much slower than the Fed would be comfortable with. And the sticky side of inflation is going to prove problematic. So that's I'm pretty optimistic in terms of some risk assets, not most. I do think earnings are going to be significantly downgraded and the stock market prices are not reflecting that at the moment. So talking about the stickiness of upward price pressure, that certainly sounds like you are more in the inflationista camp than the deflationista camp, which seems to have been uh, having a, a war on the chat shows 
over these last several months? I am, yes. I, inflation, I believe, is much more structural than we are recognizing. Again, this comes down to things have changed. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. The, our demographics have changed. Our consumption habits have changed. Uh, we have an entirely new regime of infrastructure spending now. We all need to get to net zero. That's going to be very expensive. There are so many other forces going on in the world at the moment that hint that inflation is not coming down to 2%. I would go as far as to say probably ever again, at least not in the next couple of decades. And this mm. does mean that interest rates will remain higher than we are currently pricing in in the markets. But you know what, Ash, that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Higher interest rates are not bad for markets. It does mean that investments are allocated more judiciously, and it does set the base for a more resilient growth pattern than we have seen so far. And a moderate inflation, that's sure going to help with the debt that the United States has been incurring. Uh, here's a question that's just coming in now from Trillionx, and it's germane to exactly this point. Uh, and the the uh, question wants to ask you, do you see a risk of stagflation? In other words, uh, rising inflation and decelerating growth? I think that's what we're in already. That's a very, very good question. And yes, I have the, for some time I've been saying we are currently in stagflation. And the awful thing about stagflation is that it tends to get entrenched very quickly which is why what happens over the next few months when it comes to economic expectations is going to be totally key. I do believe we will be able to get out of stagflation because of the interconnectedness in the world today, which is very different than when last we were in a stagflationary epoch. I do believe that the shift of economic power eastwards is going to be significant. I, I don't think that China's growth and growth story from reopening is as much as everyone says it's going to be, but it's not going to be nothing. And there's also the, you know, the giant that is India that is awakening. So I don't believe we're going to stay in stagflation for long, God, I hope not. But I do believe that this is going to be a very big drag on expectations and markets going forward for the next few months. Here's a great question from Michael Roche from the Revision website. What is the macro impact of the U.S. switching to SOFR secured overnight financing rate uh, from LIBOR, the London Interbank offer rate? I got to be honest with you, I actually don't know. I've been trying to figure out. I actually have been asking myself that question, trying to find an answer. It's an excellent question. And if anyone does find out, could they please send it into Ash so he can let me know? <laughs> uh, final question. Uh, this one also from Trillionx on YouTube. Uh, any views on oil and commodities as a hedge? to stagflation. Boy, that's a really tough one, right? Because you're trying to balance decelerating growth with simultaneous rising cost push pressures. And it comes down to time frame as well, doesn't it? Oil as a hedge with stagflation depends how long you think the stagflation is going to last, depends what your you know long-term expectations for the oil price is going to be. And that comes down to energy policy. We know that um, oil fields, I mean, we're told that they are drying up and that the overall supply is going to be coming down. I personally think that there's a lot more of exploration to do. We're seeing new refineries coming online all the time. The deal that China has just signed with Saudi Arabia is key, a key example of how oil supply is not necessarily going to be going away anytime soon. But the oil price as a hedge, when it is so political, especially at the moment, that would be risky. Yeah. And it may not always be dollar denominated, uh, which is another interesting uh, conceptual thought for this market. Well, brilliant conversation. Such a pleasure having you here with us. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Question, question everything. We know that the change is here and we do need to start figuring out what that actually means. And what we are told by the centralized authorities of what is safe and what isn't safe is something that we should, you know, dive deeper into. But at the same time, 
We also need to look at markets on the global scale. The United States is the United States, the world's largest financial market, and will be a trendsetter for the global landscape going forward, but less and less so, to be honest. And we do need to take into account what is happening in other jurisdictions. Money is becoming geopolitical now as we see stories about the dollar demise. I personally don't believe that. But uh, it money has been weaponized, and this is going to change the framework that we all need to be looking at, not just our personal savings, but also how we hold our regulators and financial mm. authorities to account. Big questions indeed, Noelle. I hope you'll come back and join us again so we can continue that conversation. I would absolutely love that. This has been so much fun, Ash. Thank you, and thanks, everyone, for the questions. They've been amazing. Thanks for joining us, Noelle. And thank you so much for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.